Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Relax, that's what he says, Mark, relax. Well, what a week it's been. We've had an interesting week, haven't we, Mark, since our last podcast, so I think we'll probably jump in and talk a little bit about what's been happening um, with with myself especially um, in the last week. So this week ending April the 13th, 2018, and hello to all our listeners, and we have some interesting news stories and also a very good topic. I, mean, I think the topic we're doing today, Mark, it is such a big one that we're going to divide it into two or three podcasts over the over the next um, few weeks or few months maybe if we don't do it um, every week in a row. I think we'll break it up in between um, several podcasts over several months to keep people waiting and, and, and looking forward to the next edition of this particular topic. So, Mark, what have you been up to in the last week? Well, I was going to pat you on the back because, I, uh, first of all, because for two reasons. The first one was that I do think that today's topic is when we first mooted this topic, I do think it needs to be spread out over several of our episodes. It is a um, thing that takes up a lot of our time in practice and so it's good to talk about it in some depth. I know some of the people I've been talking to have said that our, um, that, you know, I've always worried that the you know 46 minute to an hour and two minutes is too long and no one will listen to us but um i I was saying to you before we uh went live that um i've had some feedback that it is just about the right length so so i yeah I, i think it's a good thing for us to break this topic up a little bit but it has been a um a uh, well, a troubling week. I've been worried about you, Brendan. I've been so worried after our after our podcast last week. Um, you know, I, we we signed off. We did. We got everything sorted, and then several hours later, your wonderful wife Annie gave me a call and said, "What did you do to Brendan?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, let's not leave our listeners in um, in. Um in a um, holding pattern, and um, we'll tell them what happened. Yeah, um, well, I lost my mind, Mark. I lost my mind. I literally lost my mind. And we recorded our podcast a little bit early last week, didn't we? So it was a few days earlier. So it's just been over a week. And, uh, well, it's just on a week, isn't it? Because we're recording this one a little bit early as well. But, um, yes, we recorded our podcast. I edited the podcast because we had a few technical difficulties there and apologies to anybody who heard a bit of clanking and 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 jangling and and uh carrying on during the podcast that was all down that was was all down to me being nervous (laughs) and i i sat in the soundproof booth and (laughs) jiggled around the pen the coin Everything I could lay my hands on, I was so nervous. But um, anyway, it, it uh, did make for a little background noise. But that wasn't the most important thing about the day. What what happened next, I, typ- I typically tick a little box in the post-production that 
tries to get rid of some of that uh, background music, and I don't think I did that. Yeah, so what happened is I literally lost my mind. So I, after the podcast, I went for a bike ride, which was only a pretty short bike ride, probably only about 3Ks. We're a little bit hilly where we are, and I haven't been on the bike for a while, so I thought I need to jump back on the bike and, and get moving again. And uh, I can't remember anything about the bike ride, Mark. And I got home from the bike ride, apparently, well without falling over and my wife came home with one of my other daughters they'd been out to the shopping center to visit the other daughter who was working at a shop there and i kept saying the same two or three questions over and over again where have you been what i forget the other two questions i can tell you because annie told me it was what day is it and what are we doing what have i done this morning and, yes, and, yes, and and these are characteristic for they are uh, you know for our veterinary um, uh, support personnel and vet, veterinarians these uh, questions are the repeated nature of them and the association with temporal issues is pathognomonic for what disease, Brendan? Transient global amnesia (TGA). So I can remember little snippets of probably the next three or four hours and one of those was sitting in the ambulance and thinking gee this is interesting i've never sat in an ambulance with the sirens going (laughs) (laughs) heading heading away to the hospital and and going over a speed hump is probably the only other memory i have from in the ambulance spending the next two or three hours in the emergency center at the austin hospital here in melbourne they took me there because they knew they had a good neurology department and having a CT scan on my little brain there. And they did find one, Mark. They did find one. And the good news is they didn't find any obvious pathology going on there. The obvious one was a concern about a stroke or some sort of vascular accident there or even a a brain tumour. And they ticked off those ones of saying there was none of those happening there. Um, had lots of probes stuck in various orifices and, and ECGs and all sorts of um, neurological tests. And I can remember snippets of some of those neurological tests as well, having to get up off the bed and walk in a straight line, almost like one of those uh, sobriety tests uh, and passing all of those, having lots of questions asked at me all the time, which I remember getting a little bit annoyed about them asking me the same question, what day it is, even though I didn't remember what day it was. Um and I could remember some complex things like when I think when they checked me into the hospital, I rattled off my phone number straight away and other, other details. So the, the interesting thing about this particular condition is it is just a complete loss of short-term memory for a particular period of time, usually less than six to eight hours, I think. And the interesting aspect I've found about it, apart from I can't remember a thing, <laughs> is that you can't you don't lose the memories because they're not put down in the first place so the memories are actually not put down so that's why you tend to keep asking the same questions and the, so it's quite a rare condition well, quite a yep. rare condition is that is that what yes. you well interestingly enough um one of my um my the, one of the people who live in west walls end where the sugarloaf animal hospital is um trevor is a uh, um uh, i have coffee with trevor once or 
twice a fortnight. And um, and Trevor has had a couple of episodes of TGA. When I talked to him about your circumstance, he diagnosed it before I'd even told him what had happened to you. Um, and he uh, has he, he's had it's it doesn't regularly recur, but occasional. Uh, patients have two episodes. Um, he had his first episode 12 years ago and a second episode four years ago. The second episode he knew that he was, um, he couldn't remember things, but he told, he was with his son at the time um, and he told his son that he was falling into this and that he should call his mother and tell her. The other thing that was interesting, Brendan, the other thing from my point of view that was interesting was that um, there are some predisposing factors, some predisposing um, likelihoods. With Trevor, with Trevor, it's cold. It's um, uh, there, there definitely is a connection between people who are exposed to you know, um, very cold temperatures and the likelihood of um, this TGA-style event occurring. And the other one, which several of our listeners no doubt will be aware because they've talked to me about it, is that um, extreme exertion, not a three-kilometre bike ride, but extreme exertion and sexual exertion are associated with this condition. So yeah. the obvious question and is, you can imagine, what were you doing? Yes, you can, ima- <laughs> yes, you can imagine how many um, how many jokes I've been the butt of over the last week or so, and it will continue, I'm sure, as far as that. And the sad thing about that is um, Annie was out, and if I did have a, um, a bit of a fling with um, a particular um, attractive woman i can't remember it mark i can't remember it so that's the unfortunate thing about it but they think it was tied in with the bike ride that i had yeah the other particular conditions or or activities that they've mentioned a classic for it are as you mentioned sudden immersion in cold or hot water and also some medical procedures like angiography or endoscopy and even the obvious one, mild head head trauma. And the other big one which is interesting is uh, acute emotional distress, Mark. So maybe you did push me over the edge in the last was, podcast. I was and, really um, angry at several points in that podcast. I expressed <laughs> my anger. So maybe you were, maybe it's all my were, fault. So. Yes, no, I, I don't think so. I think it's my brain was not um, was not ticking along quite well. But the good news is, yeah, of all the particular conditions that potentially could have could have occurred, this is the one that you'd want, I suppose, in that it's supposedly um, no long term effects. And yeah, uh, I do know a couple of other other people have come forward and said, yeah, they know people who have had the condition or they themselves have had the condition so even though it is listed as rare when you do a bit of a literature search on it uh it's not not unknown as far as the general population i don't I think, think so. I, I, and supposedly i was yeah. going to say that i think yeah. it's a little bit like um i was talking to a few people and there are some medical conditions that um uh, um that we don't talk about and um and i suppose a lot of mental illness is is one and um and probably these things like i i i'm assuming that you'll want to put this behind you 
like now that you're back to normal, <laughs> you'll want to put this behind you and it won't be something that, you know, a week or two down the track even or a year or two down the track that we talk about. Um, and I think there are some medical conditions that are maybe more common um, but just because they don't get discussed routinely, um, that means that um, they're sort of assumed to be uncommon. But, um, but yeah, I, I was surprised that um, that that uh, at least several people in my circle of I mentioned to Brendan that um, my dad has had a a uh, uh, they, they didn't diagnose it completely, but it was either a TGA event or a uh, temporal lobe epilepsy event where he had a period of time with absence of memory. Um, and I think these things, particularly as we live longer and go, uh, you know, we depend on our minds for a longer period of time than they're probably designed to work for, um, that we're going to have occasional ones. Anyway, I've been really worried about you, Brendan, and and it's so good to hear you just being your normal self. It's so good. Well, so am I. So am I, and I'm back. And I, it did take me a little bit longer than I thought. The neuro- neurologist said the morning, so I ended up staying one night in hospital and was discharged the next morning. I was admitted early afternoon on 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 that Monday, and he said you could go back to work straight away, and I took the day I, off. I thought you'd taken and, like three months off, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, and went back uh, the next day for a, a few, a couple of hours because I had to actually help out with getting the pays done for my staff, and things de- did seem to take a lot longer than normal to try and get things done. I, I tend to, it seemed to be slow to get things done. I um, I must have been I was deliberately not trying to rush like my normal manic way of trying to get everything done yesterday with things. So I was trying to take it easy on my little brain, but um, it did take a few days to really get back into gear and um, the last couple of days I've been feeling myself again, Mark. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it was a very um, disturbing experience, especially for those around me rather than me because at the time I wasn't particularly bothered by it, whether that was due to the mem- memory loss or not. But um, as um, all I can remember is those little snippets of those hours and it was, you know, the way I've described it to people is it was almost if you took a film um, on a film reel of an old film canister reel and you just took a pair of scissors and you cut out sections of of that particular four or five hour um um, period of time and that was um bits i just can't remember so it wasn't as if it was cloudy literally there was huge chunks of those uh few hours that i could not remember anything at all Um, and even with the time during the hospital as well as i sort of hinted at with some of the some of the episodes that happened during the hospital but by the afternoon when the family visited me um i was starting to come back to my normal self um had a bit of a headache for the rest of the night um part of that was due to where they put me (laughs) the ward they put me in was the um they were full up in the neurology ward and they ended up placing me in a shared ward with uh, three other people in the respiratory unit. Um, And the respiratory unit has people who have respiratory problems, obviously. So they were coughing and sniffling and snuffling and snoring and carrying on during the the whole night. So I didn't get much sleep for that night that I had in hospital. So I think that that, 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 that would have been the same for you as when we were sharing a room in 
Venice, Brendan. <laughs> you would have had that. No, not with you. I tell you what, I think I probably snore more than you. And I was actually worried. I said to Annie when I phoned her up after they went home and left me for the night, um, and I apparently had a sad look on my face as they all left me, um, they – I phoned Annie up later that night just before I decided to try and get some sleep and said, look, I'm worried that I won't, that I'll keep everybody awake in the ward, but it was actually the opposite there. So, yeah. And every time they had a nurse shift change, each nurse looked on my chart and and, um, looked for the medications I was on and they said, you've got no meds, you've got nothing to to give you. Um, And they were quite Perplexed about why I was sitting there and I wasn't being medicated um, for my condition, but it was just time, yeah. So it was um, quite a bizarre occurrence, and I'm hoping it doesn't happen again. I've been banned from getting on my bike now, Mark, by Annie. She says I'm not allowed to get back on my bike, um, but you know what they say: if you if if you fall off your bike, you've got to get back on it. So um, I think I will get back on the bike at one some stage, but yeah, it won't be for a a few weeks or a few months and I'll make sure it's a time when the family are home so they can keep a bit not, of a watch. Not, uh, not, not only time. the family home, but it'll have to be a time that I come down to Melbourne so, you know, I can come out for that magic coffee with you on the bike. Um, so Yes, well, the, 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 the final... The final interesting, I think, aspect of this whole saga, and considering we've been talking for 17 minutes already, Mark, um, is that I kept saying to them in the hospital and, and before I went to hospital when the ambulance um, people came here that I think I went on a bike ride and because my quadriceps, my quads felt very sore and I kept saying, I, f- I think I went on a bike ride, I think I ran on a bike ride every few minutes and everybody was sick of me saying that and in the afternoon when the family visited, Jane, my eldest daughter, um, looked at my iWatch and I did go on a bike ride because I must have t- tapped on the uh, exercise app there, which has a little different little um, apps, um, little exercise types within that app. And I tapped on cycle ride and it had recorded it here a 2.7 kilometer cycle ride, including my heart rate during that whole um, period of the, I think it was only about 16 minutes or so that I went on the bike ride. Um, so it did prove that I did go on the bike ride. Mark, I know, I, know, I, um, I do know it was one of the first questions that both Annie and the paramedics asked me when they phoned me. You've done a podcast with this man and has he got a bike ride? Did he go on a bike ride? Um, so, so I yes. know. Yes. Well, but my. The the heart rate peaked at one fifty four, I think it was, which isn't incredibly high. So, but I was exerting myself a little bit there. So, yeah, it's very interesting. So there you go, and that will go down in history, as far as I'm concerned, as the day that I lost my mind, Mark, <laughs> <laughs> in April in two thousand eighteen, and hopefully it'll be the only time that happens. So, enough about me. Um, just want to mention for any new listeners or subscribers how to get in contact with us or support us, vetgurus.com is the best place to go when you can become a, a patron um, and throw a little bit of money our way to help cover my medical costs <laughs> and perhaps help cover our podcast costs as well. But it, um, Or you can just send us an email and say hello. That would be fantastic because we love getting emails. And I think, Mark, before we jump into 
quickly our short, sharp news items and then our main topic. You wanted to mention about an email that you had from one of our long-term subscribers. I did indeed. I, I wanted to. Um, I, I, I got an email a message during the week. I had spoken to several people about um, what had happened to you and our good friend Kathy from Alice Springs um, was uh, was cooking some fish. She says this is a regular occurrence on Friday nights now that uh, she uh, whacks the fish on and um, she whacks the headphones on and listens to the podcast. Um, I would have thought that an hour cooking the fish probably would have overdone it, but what do I know? <laughs> I'm hardly a cook. But anyway, she did point out to me that in our last podcast I did, I was a bit, illiberal with the truth i did say words to the effect that um the bat lysivirus um was uh, had been recorded in the northern territory as causing the demise of several patients that in fact they had um contracted the virus they'd passed away and then subsequently um, they were diagnosed as being sufferers of the neurological effects of that lysivirus. But she did take the time to point out to me that, in fact, I had the state wrong. I, the, there have been two people who have suffered from uh, Australian bat lysivirus and passed away, but they were both in Queensland, Brendan. I'd brought the fine name of the Northern Territory into disrepute um, by... representing the frontier nature of the place um, and suggesting that all things that are bad and wild happen in the Northern Territory. And, of course, you and I both know that um, that, that's not the case. Having spent uh, several times enjoying conferences at Alice Springs and, um, and, and, and the wildlife, the beautiful wildlife of the area um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to come down with Australian bat lysivirus if you go to the NT. So I apologise profusely both to all the uh, uh, population of the Northern Territory and more specifically to the wonderful Kath. Um, so there you go. Uh, yes, and I will put a link to the link you just sent me about one of the deaths in Queensland from um, a human, a, a boy, I think, that died from Lysivirus. Um, yes, sad. Um, and, well, sad on both counts, sad that um, you um, got it wrong, Mark. I couldn't believe you that you would get something wrong, Mark. Um, and I know you get angry about things, but um, you're never wrong about those sort of things. So, yes, um, maybe you've... Got a little bit of transient global amnesia as well happening somewhere in the background, just a minor little aspect of it. Let's jump into our news stories. I think we've only got two this week because we've babbled on too long about what was happening with me. Um, I might get you to jump into your news story first, Mark, and it's a one about chooks, about it's a chickens. Lovely, it's a clinician, clinician's brief article um, about do backyard chickens pose any health risks to humans? I know from my practice um, the backyard chickens are making a resurgence, Brendan. They are, like, really, really becoming popular. And, um, and we have a surprising number of clients who, um, who uh, not only have just taken on the backyard chickens as... Uh, as egg producers, um, sometimes as meat producers, um, but um, they've taken them on as pets. They, they, 
I'm happy to relate the story of several of our clients who um, who talked to me about my um, my Fox subscription. Now you know we don't uh, promote um, other entities on our uh, wonderful channel, our wonderful podcast. But I do ha- I do watch Fox. I do subscribe to Fox, and um, and they have I think it's now two hundred and thirty eight channels. And I agree with some of my clients that I would rather spend the afternoon watching the chickens in the yard um, because they're more entertaining, Brendan. They're much more entertaining yes. than any of the 238 channels on Fox. Um, and so uh, it's no surprise that there's an increasing number of people who are taking on board um, either chickens that have been rescued from uh, uh, from layer facilities or um, chickens. We get a surprising number of um, of the show chickens as well. Um, and so these have become backyard pets. But people are not necessarily aware of the risk. And this is a personal issue for me because um, when my eldest son, who is approaching his 21st birthday, a significant event that you're aware of, Brendan, um, he, when he was four years old, we did have a backyard flock of chickens um, and in the, I don't know, they were, they were looser times, Brendan. 20 years ago they were, you know, wilder, less rule-managed times. And, um, well, maybe you were, you were looser. And, um, I knew you were loose um, during those times. I certainly wasn't, Mark, so go on. Anyway, Br- Brendan, um, Renwick, my son, uh, came down with uh, salmonellosis, quite severe salmonellosis. He was hospitalised. He had the whole, you know, um, typical uh, hemorrhagic diarrhoea, um, uh, systemic illness arrangement. Um, he was only in hospital, fortunately, for about the same time you were. And um, but they did culture the bacteria. They identified the salmonella. We provided them with um, samples from our chickens in the yard, and it did prove that it was exactly the same serotype. He had caught. Um, salmonellosis from our backyard chickens. So this whole article rings true to me. It's a thing that we need to, whenever we uh, have clients who come to us with backyard chickens, we need to remind them that uh, both salmonella and campylobacter and in general all the gram-negative enterobes um, can be a potential risk um, for anyone who comes into contact with eggs or environments or chickens before they are slaughtered and cooked. So uh, um, the interesting thing about this, Brendan, is that this is one of those diseases that um, does affect humans with uh, compromised immune systems. That is the uh, those people that are younger than five years, older than 65 years, pregnant, uh, or they uh, have cancer or immunos, they're, they're getting immunosuppressive drugs for transplants. Those people uh, seem to be, you know, particularly vulnerable where there's other diseases that knock, you know, the population around in general. This group, these groups really have to be very, very careful around, um, around backyard chickens. And so the take-home message is wash your bloody hands. 
Um, all the other things that you can do amount to 5% of solving the problem, but making sure that you wash your hands, that you don't kiss your chickens, that you um, uh, make sure that adults who supervise children in contact with chickens should just absolutely make sure that they wash their hands. Make sure that there are hand sanitizers or sanitizing soaps available um, all the time. And, um, and of course, uh, get in their mind that there should be a barrier between uh, cooked and uncooked chicken meat. And so poultry should not be allowed to get to parts of our houses um, where foods or drinks are prepared and they might bypass that barrier between cooked and uncooked. Um, and even just being aware of your shoes is so critically important. Um, so uh, I think this article on the clinician's brief concerning uh, salmonellosis and the risks um, primarily from chickens, but you and I both know that this is also an issue with um, reptilian patients. Uh, um, yes, and I was I was going to sorry to interrupt, <laughs> but I was too going. Long. It's time you said something. <laughs> I was going to say it's very similar to what we talk all the time. Being keen reptilian veterinarians um, to our clients about dealing with reptiles, exactly the same comments as far as washing hands, making sure that people with compromised immune systems don't have contact with reptiles but i must admit i do forget about mentioning these factors to the backyard chicken owners because we definitely have an increased number of people who keep them as pets um, in melbourne here like you mentioned you see a lot of people who i think if i if i think back 10 years or so the number of clients that would be phoning up or bringing in their chickens their backyard chickens was very few and far between mark but there wouldn't be a month if not a fortnight that goes by that we don't have somebody ringing up about pet chickens so they are certainly more popular mark but yeah exactly the same um procedure should be undertaken to help prevent the problems we have with zoonoses with reptiles as we do with the chickens but yeah i think it was a really timely article mark because we do tend to forget about that and it was a very well written article i think mark as you mentioned already the other article is a bit more of a fun one mark and i i've stolen this one and this is corelli geddon and it's little flockers is the title of it and it is about long beaked Corellas causing havoc in the Melbourne region, which is where I am. And it, it is of particular interest to me because I have seen an increase in the number of Corellas that we see in our local area. And it's a bit of an alarmist and a fun, I suppose. I don't know whether it's a, it was meant to be a fun article, this one, but it certainly is a bit alarmist talking about how people in the leafy suburbs of Melbourne are worried about the numbers of Corellas and it's a bit like a Hitchcock horror film and one woman, a resident in Hawthorne, mentions that 40 of these Corellas gathered in their front in their front yard, circling the sky, then savagely attacking the trees, tearing apart, apart the leaves, the branches and the seas. They were having the Corella party of all time and it's thought that flocks of up to 500 birds are running riot through Melbourne's leafy eastern suburbs, getting stuck in to introduce trees 
cities and creating a mess. The Corellas, which are not native to Melbourne, have besieged the affluent inner east due to their rapacious hunger for the liquid amber trees popular in the area, according to Rowan Clark, senior lecturer at the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. And it goes on several more paragraphs um, and linking back and I like your comment on this one of the one of the thoughts that there were a number of theories behind the Melbourne's Corellas plague supposed plague but the most popular was that it stemmed from a failed Victorian government attempt to reduce an out-of-control population in the 1980s. Uh, at the time, permits were issued for corellas to be trapped and sold cheaply as cage pets, and the problem was that adult corellas make terrible pets, said Dr Clark. They used to be used to be out in the wild, so they make a lot of noise when they're trapped in cages. Can you remember this, Mark? Was this a particular Look, I think problem? Dr Clark is talking a whole heap of garbage there. To be completely honest with you, <laughs> I think that um, that uh, the number of birds that uh, were trapped in the 1980s would probably just be on one lawn now, and the ones that have survived and been re-released, I just don't think they amount to the number. I think this is a classic example of us changing the environment. These birds, the corellas, the long-billed and short-billed corellas, they are inland birds. They are birds of the dry country. And uh, and the way that we've cleared the forests away from the east coast um, has facilitated their um, invasion of that area. These birds are not the result of, um, of those failed government attempts to reduce the out-of-control population in the 1980s. They are new birds who have flown into the area. These flocks of corellas travel oh, easily 40, 60 kilometres a day at the, at the, the bare minimum. Um, and we have the same problem in Newcastle, Brendan. You poor Melburnians are not the only ones to suffer from the um, the short build and long build corella problem. Um, they are booming all up and down the east coast, and it's because of the way we've changed the the environment. and And I noticed uh, my good uh, uh, Sean Dooley, who uh, is just such a an excellent um, uh, uh, advocate for um, bird issues. Um, uh, We'll have to talk about Sean's endeavours at another podcast, but he points out that um, the Corellas outcompete the Rosellas and the yellowtail black cockatoos, and they start to interfere with the success of other hollow nesting birds. and um, And they're 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 um, he says they're outmuscling smaller parrots, but I just think they're just um, weight sheer weight of numbers and pugnacious behaviour leads to them. It's like nightclubs, Brendan. It's like nightclubs. They just push the, the more um, relaxed, the more laid-back birds out of the area and um, they stop breeding. Um, and so you do end up with um, either in Adelaide or Melbourne or Newcastle, you end up with plague proportions. We have a colony of just a few kilometres from our hospital they nest, they roost uh, on Warners Bay. Um, there's some beautiful gum trees there. They chew the leaves off 
and there would be at least 3,000, 4,000 birds nesting, roosting there, and those birds then shoot out and, um, and often hit um, food resources uh, where people have laid out food for other species. The corellas will just, like, take over. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a really interesting story. It's just typical of you Melburnians to um, have you know, 40 or 50 birds on the front lawn and think that's the end of world as, the world as we know it when uh, the rest of us have been dealing with thousands of these corellas and, and, and <laughs> as Kobe. Well, I, must, I must admit we have seen in my area, um, which I suppose is part of the catchment area that this article talks about, we have seen a definite increase increase in the corellas, but also a lot of other um, native birds and a lot of the other parrots as well. So I've seen a general increase in lots of species, which I think is a good thing. Um, but, yes, we do see a, a reasonable number of the corellas as well. So I don't regard them as a particular problem at the moment, but maybe we may in the future. I, I quite like them. I think they're quite, um, yeah, they are a bit raucous, aren't they, um, the old old Corellas, but probably that's why I tend to um, side with them a little bit there. But, yes, yeah, so that was article number two. We're not going to have any more articles, Mark, because we need to jump into part one of our multi-part series on dental disease in rabbits because we have lots of people who want us to chat about rabbits and dental disease everything from the diagnosis the potential causes of it prevention of it and the obvious one the treatment regimes for it which we won't be covering in this particular podcast so this being part one mark we are going to talk about the diagnosis and a little bit about the prevention and, and potential causes uh, all the causal links that we think are involved with dental disease in our little bunny rabbits mark so let's jump into maybe the signs mark so what are the signs of our dental disease cases in our pet rabbits do you want to run through a couple i will of mention i will mention points. a couple of quick points yeah. um the first one to mention is that sometimes we don't see anything Sometimes we have rabbits that have maybe obscure clinical signs, or uh, or maybe we're even at their. Uh, we we tend to recommend to our clients because we're vaccinating them with the Khaleesi virus vaccine every six months. We're looking at them every six months, and we might find signs. We might stick the scope in their mouth and see that they've got issues associated with their teeth. And they're not showing any signs at that time. So um, I think it's really important to emphasise that um, that it's important to look because sometimes there's nothing at the moment. Um, but the other things that we do see, if it's progressed a little bit past that, um, then often we'll see uh, anorexia. The rabbits will not eat as much as they normally do. Um, and it often takes, they'll often still play around with their food and do things like they normally would do. Um, but they're, they're particularly many of our house rabbit owners who have the rabbits inside, they'll be quite aware that things are not right and the rabbits are not eating their normal amount. Slobbers is often uh, frequently reported um 
clinical sign that is there's excess salivation and the saliva overflows from the mouth and runs down often from the commissures of the lips down to the folds and particularly for many of our uh, purebred rabbits who have the dewlap and big folds under their neck they'll have saliva that stains that area and they might lose hair um, and even develop infections under their jaw um, and certainly don't focus my recommendation is not to focus on the proximate problem don't just look at the skin but look inside the mouth and you and I both regularly see uh, masses on the face whether it be um, uh, um, on the upper jaw or the lower jaw we'll f um, see uh, alterations to the symmetry of a rabbit's face often a, uh, uh, people often don't notice things until they're quite significant maybe a 30 or 35 millimeter mass would be the sort of thing that people would bring into us um, and we will identify some form of osteomyelitis or abscess associated with that that might indicate that might be that might be uh, the consequence of the uh, dental disease as being the starting cause it might be as simple as just some behavioral changes i had a client recently who came into me and uh, said i need you to look inside my wonderful rabbit's mouth because um, he's gone under the lounge. He's an indoor rabbit. He never goes under the lounge. He's always out and doing things, but his behaviour changed and he hid under the lounge and um, and sure enough, we looked inside his mouth and there were big spurs on the the uh, molars of the uh, mandible and, um, and they were obviously causing him some discomfort and his expression of that was to hide away from things that... Uh, that um that were worrying him that yes and I, th I think with those behavioral changes mate we can end up with the extremes we can have a rabbit that is not particularly affectionate to their to the owners that does the opposite it becomes very cuddly it wants to be handled or it lets itself be handled or we have a a rabbit that was handled regularly that um cope with that quite well that ends up being quite bitey and, and a bit stroppy and, and unhappy because it has a sore mouth. So um, look for the, – the key there is to look for what is normal with that particular rabbit and is it doing something behaviour-wise that it doesn't typically do during its normal normal day-to-day -day activity. So, yeah, we, we, we see that very frequently in, in my practice as far as rabbits that have underlying dental disease with this. And getting back to one of the other points you have there, part of that clinical examination of any rabbit should be palpating the mandible, both sides um, looking for asymmetry there as you palpate for those lumps, palpate in the maxillary area, so this is externally as you're doing your clinical examination, and also having a look inside that mouth and doing an oral examination of that rabbit and um, using a soft otoscope cone to have a quick look inside the, the mouth um, because you will often pick up obvious spurs and and, and dis, um um, asymmetry in the teeth there and uh, abnormal Brendan, teeth with them. I've got a, I've just got a, a quick, quick question look. for you. Yep. Um, I, I, when yeah. I'm talking to 
the students that come to visit us or the vet nurses, um, they often focus on the incisors, the teeth at the front, and they'll often lift the lips up and and say, oh, look, they're relatively normal or sometimes there's some clues in the incisors that will lead you to look further into the mouth. But I always say to them that they need to uh, look far more deeply into the mouth. How? What technique do you use to look at those molars, Brendan? How do you set it up to have a look um, deeply into the rabbit's mouth? What techniques do you use? Okay, well, let me try and describe how it's done with the typical rabbit in front of me and that's I'm standing on one side of the consultation table the client's on the other side the rabbit is facing towards me it is on a towel and the client I will ask the client to hold the rabbit fairly firmly around the abdomen and obviously you need to choose which particular clients you get to hold the rabbit if I'm worried that the client has no idea about how to handle their rabbit I will be having one of my nurses do that uh, particular aspect of it um, and then I will be holding the head I'll hold I'm left-handed so I will hold the head with my right hand over the so the rabbit's facing towards me on the consult room table on a towel I will hold the whole rabbit's head in my hand from dorsally from above the rabbit and I'll have an otoscope in my left hand with one of those green plastic otoscope cones I will keep the rabbit I'll I'll usually ask the client to have the rabbit's backside pushed into their tummy into their um, so they're cuddling the rabbit almost Um, so it's backed up against the client so it provides an extra bit of bit of um, hold in there so so that they're, they're confining that rabbit and then I will tilt the rabbit's head probably up anything from 30 to 45 degrees Uh, the rabbit's still sitting on the table or the towel there and using my left hand i will introduce the otoscope cone to one side of brendan i've got got a quick have a look at at this point i do exactly the same thing as you but at this point about um well i would say almost a hundred percent of the rabbits start to move around they feel uncomfortable the owners being very sensitive and obviously holding the rabbit uh, reasonably firmly, they often get quite worked up at this point. But I usually find that if I persist and I talk gently, I let the clients know that this is going to take 30 to 60 seconds, that most of the rabbits will acquiesce. They'll, They'll calm down over that sort of, 20 to 30 seconds they'll realize that I'm not going to do any particular damage to their mouth and I'll often get a quite a great view if I just um, am persistent and gentle and particularly if I just calm the clients down if the rabbit feels their owner is getting worked up about what's going on then things don't go well but if the client is going oh mark or brendan is going to just be another 20 seconds or so and everything will be okay the rabbit seems to calm down as well is that what you find yes and yes it is important to pre-warn the clients and i do that with with all of those clients, if I ha- if they haven't seen me examine inside a rabbit's mouth before, I warn them that hey, yeah, this is going to be a bit uncomfortable. It's not going to hurt, but it's going it will be a bit annoying for the rabbit having this plastic 
cone shoved inside its mouth, but majority of the rabbits cope with it quite well and it will take less, probably less than a minute on each side for me to do it. And yes, you will have certain rabbits that just do not cope with it and freak out. Hopefully with the majority of those ones, you can pick it beforehand because they're the flighty rabbits and then you may be wrapping that rabbit up or, or having a nurse hold the rabbit as well as the nurse wrapping it up in into a rabbit burrito with the towel and that will certainly aid restraining that rabbit while, while we're having a look inside the mouth. And there is a very rare case when I do not continue with the procedure in the consult room to try and look at its cheek teeth or those premolars and molars because the rabbit is so distressed and I think the other important factor leading on from this is that we will miss pathology in there just from looking inside the mouth in a consult we usually only pick up the major um, spurs and, and major major pathology that's going on in there so don't think that just because you've looked inside the rabbit's mouth with an otoscope in a consult that it doesn't have dental disease mark um, and i know you 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 know that but some of our listeners may not know that because i've i've lost count of how many rabbits that have been referred to me where the referring vet has said we've had a bit of a look inside the mouth and it doesn't have dental disease. Um, what's going on with this rabbit? And we end up working up this rabbit and guess what? It has dental disease. Um, they just didn't look deep enough uh, with with going the next step and sedating or anaesthetising the rabbit and taking radiographs, etc. So I think we should jump onto the next little bit, which, is, which follows on quite nicely from this, Mark, and that is... What are the workup basics or what are the recommendations for a rabbit that we suspect has dental disease? So what's your standard? Well, I think um, you've you've already highlighted a couple of the most important things that I think, you know, through this podcast, we have reiterated numerous times that the uh, simple things, the basic things, a good thorough physical exam, you've highlighted palpation of the mandible. I find this to be a... Um, uh, underrated diagnostic tool with these rabbits. I think that if you feel for symmetry, you'll often be clued in to say, oh, look, that side of the mandible is not right. I'll take a little bit of extra time and make sure things are good. Um, uh, so I think not just visually confirming everything looks normal in the mouth, uh, but palpation. I think that our second thing is um, radiographs. I think that uh, we, you know, Intraoral exams give us a good view of the crown and when, when dental disease is significant, the crown will change shape or change orientation. Um, you, I've seen some classic, and I know you have to, as well, Brendan, we've seen some just amazing uh, images once we get inside the mouth where the tooth, the, the teeth of the lower mandible might actually like spear through and 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 uh, trap the tongue and prevent grooming, for example. Um, but I think what's going on above the the uh, gum line the, with the crown is only the tip of the iceberg. And so radiographs to make sure what's going on inside the the bone of the lower and upper jaw is absolutely critical. Um, we do like to make sure we do bloods. Uh, I had a talk today with uh, my uh, associate, Dr. Alex, and we talked about the utility of bloods in uh, a number of our avian cases, but 
we also uh, uh, emphasised how much more useful um, getting bloods for our rabbits is, particularly in circumstances like this and uh, particularly in terms of preventing, uh, you know, getting a clue about the metabolic state of the rabbit and preventing things get out of control before we consider uh, sedation or anaesthesia to examine the mouth further. So I suppose in summary, a thorough physical exam, focusing on uh, visualisation and palpation, uh, radiographs and blood work. Um, but I th also just quickly mention, I know there's a lot of European uh, veterinarians who work with rabbits who are doing CT scans now, Brendan. Um, so have you had any of your cases where you've whacked the referral note onto them and sent them over for CT scans? Yes, because we're lucky enough in that my, um, uh, the part-time vets who work for me also work at another clinic here in Melbourne, the Rabbit Doctors, and they work out of an emergency centre where they do have an in-house CT scanner. So it is not rare for us to have a CT done with some of these unusual but not rare to have a CT done um, via that clinic so um, we send them over there and then they send them back with the CT scan um, sometimes vice versa in that um, they'll send some suspect dental cases to, to us to be worked up for com complex surgical procedures and I will say no it needs an, a CT done first and it goes back to them first before it comes back to us. So yeah we do, do see the odd CT scan so they're good fun to look at and you do get some lovely detail there of, of, of what's happening with those two root abscesses with them but uh, yeah um, I think that would have, will increasingly happen as as those particular um, modalities become cheaper. Um, I think it's going to be a fair while before <laughs> we have a CT scan at my practice, Mark, and, and perhaps the same at your practice. But uh, it's um, great to be able to have those done when and when they are done, we get some fun little pics now, to look at, Mark. Yeah, so I, I just reminded me when, you're I, good. when you're talking there, Mark, sorry, j jumping in, um, just going back to the signs, um, but the other classic sign that people look at that we didn't mention for dental disease in rabbits is that probably one of the most obvious ones, and that is a change in the diet uh, selection of the rabbit. So a rabbit that does not want to eat the fibrous matter anymore, so it doesn't like to chew on its hay or its or its sticks or its branches, etc., and it starts going for the softer foods. That's an obvious indicator that maybe it has potentially dental and disease. And that, in the that tip segues so, yeah. um, nicely into almost like a, a bit of historical data. Do you do you um, uh, notice a particular pattern with diet leading to dental disease in our pet rabbits? Most definitely, most definitely. So I think if we finish off, because we're almost at our hour mark, finish off with the, uh, a couple of tips or comments about the potential causes of dental disease in rabbits when I like to simplify things because I'm a pretty simple person, especially since I've lost my mind, <laughs> Mark, and I, I tend to uh, put it into two possible causes and or groups, and that is genetic causes. So these are the congenital 
dental disease cases we see in rabbits and classically they'll be showing up with a rabbit that develops dental disease well before it's one year of age and typically classically they are the rabbits that have those really obvious incisor malocclusion so it isn't it hasn't been on the bad diets which is a potential second cause that we worry about with them long enough for it to be a cause of the dental disease so i lump them into the congenital disease and then we lump it into the second cause which is acquired disease is probably what the most common term that people use for it uh, there's a few other terms that people use for the for the other cause so that's all the other causes including environmental factors which may include things like lack of access to natural light and vitamin d because one of the theories out there that may be causing the dental disease is a, a variation on the metabolic bone disease of vitamin d calcium deficiencies uh, but also diet marks so getting back to answering your question yes the most common cause of these middle-aged rabbits so these rabbits that show up with the dental disease at anything from two to three four five six years of age is that they've been on a crappy diet they've been on a bad diet for many months to many years and typically they've been fed on a large percentage of their diet being the muesli mixes or the rabbit mixes that you buy from various places so these seed-based grain type mixes so that's the first thing i'd be looking at with these rabbits that have the long-term dental disease that we think is not genetic because they haven't developed the de- uh, the incisor dental disease when they're very young i'd be quizzing the owners about the diet and yeah we see lots of these where we look at they they mention and all the clients that come in f- with with new animals to our practice have to fill in a really detailed history form and part of that history form for the rabbits is what do you feed your rabbit and if i pick up that form even before i've seen that rabbit that's coming in with suspected dental disease and i see that it's been on a rabbit muesli type mix for many months or many years um, the chances are very high that that's a big factor with the cause of the dental disease in that particular rabbit do you have a similar sort of process that happens in your 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 patients with chronic dental disease this is going to come as a huge surprise to most of the people who listen to us regularly but it's almost identical um we definitely see a pattern associated with uh low fiber diets those muesli mixes there it's it's a code that you and i use muesli mixes it's the supermarket it's the um the those they look at they actually look like i've grabbed a couple of them and they look really good they've got sunflower seed they've got um uh, a little bit of uh, alfalfa chopped alfalfa they've got molasses they've got uh, a number of other seeds and and uh, maybe a couple of pellets, um, but they're actually really bad. They look healthy, but they're really, really bad mixes. And um, and we definitely associate those mixes with a increase in dental disease. They they oversupply calcium. They oversupply energy. They encourage uh, excessive metabolism at the base of the tooth root. They discourage um, chewing the food is easily processed compared to the things that the rabbit is designed to eat and they make problems and we see those problems as soon as um, as you said the rabbits reach middle age um, and it's awful because the people who who 
bring the rabbits to us, love them, and they've been doing what they think is the best. They've looked at this food, it looks healthy, and uh, they think their rabbit's going to be good, and they're often devastated when we broach the topic that their food it may not be the, the best thing and may, in fact, have contributed to the rabbit's condition at the moment. And it's frustrating for everybody for the rabbit because they have now chronic dental disease for the client because they have the the costs of dealing with that and the guilt of dealing with that and for the vets as well because we now have a rabbit that will have ongoing dental disease that is not as simple as say fixing a broken leg mark where if you fix it okay the first time you don't need to revisit that broken leg so it's quite quite difficult to deal with long term and and that's one of the things that we will be talking about in probably episode two or episode three or maybe episode four of dental disease in rabbits when we get to it we will be walking ourselves through the process of the treatment options for dealing with dental disease in rabbits both the grinding down of the teeth or the reshaping of the teeth um, extraction of um, abnormal teeth and and as, as, as you and I know, for those of who, who deal with us who deal with rabbits all the time, we do end up removing all the incisors in in in, in rabbits in in many cases, and the rabbits cope quite well. And the difficulty of dealing with the dental uh, osteomyelitis infections there, so the tooth root abscesses, as, and all the complex dealings of trying to deal with those and the possible treatments of dealing with tooth root abscesses. So we've got a lot more to talk about with dental disease in rabbits, Mark. I think we've only sort of touched the surface there or scratched the surface there of, of um, what happens with these dental disease cases in rabbits. And I must admit, dental disease in rabbits does make up a, a big percentage of the cases that we see in my practice um, generally, not just, not just in... Um, if we just talk about within rabbits, but the actual overall income of the clinic is um, pretty high to, from from dental disease in rabbits, and potentially we could be put out of business if people did the right things and they fed lots of hay and grass and and weeds and fresh foods and fiber to their to their rabbits to have help help avoid dental disease in the first place with their rabbits mark i think we've got over the one hour mark so have you got any other little comments before we get no i think it's a um, i was just going to reiterate exactly what you've said that i think um uh, it would be an excellent way for us to go out of business if we could uh put a big sign up on the outside of our practice going out of business because all the rabbits are healthy I would, I would, I would love to be in that situation. But um, I think of all the other points that we need to make, um, we can follow up in our subsequent episodes. I think we will do that, Mark. So here comes Mr. Atrega, and thanks for listening. And hopefully, if I remember, we'll be here next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.